Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code. A lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash codeassistant. IBM. Let's create. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Hey, everyone. Thanks for being here. Today on the show, I am very honored to have on the inimitable Fran Leibowitz. She's a writer known for two books, Metropolitan Life and social studies. Both are collections of stories she wrote for Interview Magazine back in the late 70s, early 80s. These stories, which mostly focus on New York City living, are humorous, human, and biting. They serve as incisive commentaries on a changing city and the people therein. But mostly, they are very, very funny. Since the publication of those two books, she's developed a kind of notorious writer's block. We'll get into that. These days, before COVID, she's made a career out of talking at universities and institutions around the world. This penchant for talking was documented in a film called Public Speaking, directed by her longtime friend, Martin Scorsese. In fact, the pair have a forthcoming Netflix series focused on Fran walking and talking around New York. As you'll hear, Fran has a willingness to talk about everything. Race, class, art, politics, fame, gay rights. And so that's what we did. For the sake of categorization, she is a public intellectual. But she's not all that public. She's completely averse to 21st century technology. If I'm honest, she's not that thrilled about 20th century technology either. And so this episode marks a first for us. This was taped by phone, on her landline, the only piece of technology, aside from a TV, 
she owns, that and her 1979 pearl gray checker cap. So, why don't we call her up? Hello? Hello? Hi, this is, this is Sam. Hi, this is Fran. How are you doing? Uh, compared to whom? <laughs> Let's start with you. I'm doing the same as everyone else is doing. I'm guessing. I don't know everyone else, but I seem to know most. I heard a lot of people are making phone calls to you that previously said they would never make phone calls to you. Is that still true? Well, since they're making phone calls, I mean, I mean, I have numerous friends who for years, you know, ever since uh, texting, they said, I hate to talk on the phone. I don't talk on the phone anymore. But since the um, virus, um, not only do they seem to like to talk on the phone, I can't get them off the phone. And I like to talk on the phone. Uh, that's my only means of communication. But I've always liked to talk on the phone because I like to talk. Um, but, uh, yes, there's been a tremendous conversion. So you don't have a cell phone. You don't have the Internet. You don't have all the reasonable things people use to excuse themselves from doing the work they're supposed to do. Was that a choice? Let me assure you, there, there's no one better at putting things off than I am. I don't need any modern devices to do that. Um, it wasn't a choice. I mean, not having all these things wasn't really a choice. It looks like a choice now. In fact, it looks like an ideology, um, but it is not. It was just that when they invented computers, I mean, the sort of computer you had in your house, they were called word processors. Um, this is, you know, a century ago. A, a friend of mine who was a screenwriter got one, and she was raving about it. She said, you have to come to my apartment and look at this thing. So I went and I looked at it, and it seemed to me to be just a very fast typewriter, which is kind of what it was then. I didn't even have a typewriter. I never had a typewriter. I don't know how to type. So I thought, I don't need this. I don't know how to type. As you know, this machine progressed. Um, I didn't realize, of course, that the entire world would go into this machine, um, but I still don't know how to type. And so uh, that's my primary reason for not having these things. Now, it's difficult for other people. It's not difficult for me. I don't care. People complain to me all the time, you know, but you don't have a cell phone. I can't reach you. You know, you're on the plane. I can't reach you. That's okay with me. I don't feel I have to be available to people all the time. How often do you want to be available to them? Well, the thing about the regular telephone is that you can call people when you want. They can call you when they want. You may answer. You may not answer. I mean, I understand, you know, people who have jobs you know, or kids who are in school, although no kids are in school at the moment, um, they have to have them. You know, it's part of their life. It's, you know, the way the world runs. But this is one of the few upsides of being old. I don't have to have it. Would you consider yourself old? I don't really think of myself in that way, you know, but, you know, at a certain age, if you're a woman, um, people start calling you ma'am. Even people who have horrible manners in other ways. They reach for this old-fashioned word and use it to you. Do you think there is uh, more of an obsession with age now than there was when you were in your 20s? You know, a lot of this concentration on age is just marketing. Everyone has become kind of suffused with things that really are the province of people trying to sell you stuff. Naming generations. People call people my age baby boomers. Then they call them boomers. That used to mean you were young, by the way. You see, this is what happens. I mean, you know, that when they started calling us that, we were kids. So, you know, that means you're young. It's just like, you know, now 
people that I always get mixed up now. There's so many different categories of people. For a while, millennials were the youngest people. Now, I believe there are two generations after them. But these are marketing generations. These aren't real generations. A human generation is like 20 years. A cultural generation used to be like 10 years. You know, now it's like 10 minutes. You write with a with a big pen, right? A big pen or any kind of ballpoint pen. And you once said, I'm such a slow writer. I have no need for anything as fast as a word processor. I don't need anything so snappy. I write so slowly that I could write in my own blood without hurting myself. That's a fact. My problem isn't that I write slowly. It's that I write at all. So when I do write, um, I do write very slowly, but I don't write, I don't do drafts. So that when I finish a sentence, that sentence is finished. So it could take quite a long time to write that sentence. Most writers, you know, they uh, write, you know, in drafts over and over again. Most writers also, at least most writers that I've ever known, um, seem to have the problem of writing too much. You know, they're always saying, I have to get it, you know, I have to cut it down. I have to make it shorter. This is not my problem. And that's nothing to do with writing with a pen, by the way. I mean, if I had, uh, you know, an iPhone or whatever people write on now, an iPad, a computer, I would be also write very slow. I mean, these uh, machines um, change writing, not just the act of writing, but for instance, I don't, you know, this is not a statistic. This is my observation. Books, novels are much longer than they used to be. Just the average novel, the average book is much longer. And I think that is because when I was young, people typed, not me, but when you typed on a typewriter and you made a mistake or you changed it, you had to type it over. Now they just press something and it goes away. It, and um, so they can keep writing. Also, it, you don't really see how long it is. Um, they don't care how long it is, apparently. Um, and it also looks perfect. You know, when you delete something, it disappears. Then people used to cross stuff out and white stuff out. Um, it looked very worked on. And now it doesn't. So it looks perfect. When I write, I used to write by hand, then I would read it to someone who typed it. When I got to type pages, I couldn't believe how much better the writing was. And mm. uh, now it looks perfect right away. So people think, oh, it looks perfect. It's done. But I have news for them. It may look perfect, but it is not done. Don't you feel that there are too many writers right now? Yes, way too many. There are way too many writers. There are too many artists of every sort. It's not a moral judgment. It's just that, that one of the things required to participate in these forums is talent. And there's just never been that many talented people. There may always have been more talented people than you were aware of because there were so uh, many strictures against kind of getting in. Um, and that is definitely a good thing, not a bad thing. Because there were people that were kept out having nothing to do with talent. But, you know, you're, there's no era... You know, where there were like a million great writers. There are certainly times where there are like kind of pockets of terrific writers um, or moments or places in the world where you get, you know, there was, you know, uh, an awful lot of great painters in Renaissance Italy. That happens. Yes, of course. There's also their writing schools now. When I was young, there was the University of Iowa Writers Workshop. As far as I was aware, that was it. And... It's a silly thing, a writing school. You know, I just think it's a ridiculous thing. You can't, this is a thing you can't teach. This is not possible. To teach this, 
these schools, uh, the teachers are people who are writers because, of course, it's almost impossible to make a living as a writer. So they teach at these schools. I have a lot of friends who teach at these schools. Um, the kids go to these schools. They meet these teachers who are already published writers, and they help them get published. But that isn't the same thing as learning to be a writer. Do you feel like you had an ability to write inherently? Yes. Just the same way I could tell you that I do not have an ability to sing. Also, an ability that's inherent. Okay, so that uh, I am a terrible singer, um, even though I can sing, by which I mean I can sing, but it is horrible. If I went to singing school, it would still be horrible. The only difference is perhaps they would point out why it was horrible. But I couldn't become a great singer because I don't have the ability to be a great singer. I probably could be better, you know, if someone was constantly yelling at me, don't you? I have a friend, my best friend, who has perfect pitch. And you can be in a restaurant with her. Well, when you used to be in restaurants with people. And it would be really noisy and there was music that you could hardly hear. And all of a sudden she would wince. And, you, and I would say, what's wrong? She would, can't you hear he's flat? No, I can't. Do you have a similar experience when reading a book where the writing is weak? You should be a diplomat. <laughs> weak? <laughs> yes, <laughs> I do. I absolutely do. I don't want to brag, but I would say I'm one of the greatest readers in the country. I'm a great reader. I mean, I notice every single thing in a sentence. And there are certain things I don't notice when reading because I don't care about them. I don't care that much about stories. So that if I'm reading a novel, I'm not like noticing. People say, well, didn't you think the story didn't really hold together? I don't really care. Maybe it didn't hold together. I don't know. But first, you'd have to be wanting it to hold together to begin with. Um, so that there's certain, but sentences I notice. And I notice sentences word by word. So, and that is something that I'm very interested in. That, and that's something that I love, you know, I think, which is why I'm so good at it. I'm a very good editor, you know, which I edit as I'm reading. Sometimes if I'm in a particularly horrible mood, which has been like the last six months, reading alone in my apartment, I will yell at the book. I started this conversation by asking you, how are you doing? And you should have just come out and said, I'm in a horrible mood. Well, because a mood is a transient thing. You know, I mean, everyone's in a horrible mood. I mean, I, now when people ask you how you are, you're supposed to say, I'm fine. Meaning, I did not die of this virus. And I was not killed by a cop. So, yes, a lot of people I know say, well, I'm better off than most people. But that has always been true, by the way. Mm. Most of the people I know have always been better off than most people. Um, they are also, in general, not the most grateful people on the planet Earth. People are not fine now, generally, because it's a very horrible time. I mean, in a way, you know, it's better if you're usually in a bad mood, if you want to call it a mood, when everyone's in a bad mood. And pretty much everyone's in a bad mood. I mean, I do have a few friends who have, are say they're enjoying this era, the era of the virus. And maybe they are. I guess I believe them. I don't know why you would say it. But the reasons that they're enjoying it are things that don't interest me. You know, I am not teaching myself to do anything. I have not learned anything since I was a teenager. You don't strike me as someone who's going to pick up yoga in this time. No. I have a friend who's learning Sanskrit. <laughs> Sanskrit. The, the, the guy who teaches this, you know, of course, on the Internet is in India. My friend is in the West Village. There are apparently like nine other people in the world learning Sanskrit from this guy. And so I said to this friend of mine, I said, well, the thing is, you could tell everybody that, you know, that you've learned it perfectly and no one will say, no, you have not. <laughs> <laughs> 
You know, there are so many people that have written about you on the internet that are great big fans of yours. I don't know if you're aware of this, but there is a general feeling of unease, way in which people feel intimidated by you. Are you aware of this? I'm aware that some people are afraid of me. I, I'm, I am aware of that. I don't care. I'm, I'm an exceptionally delightful person, but I understand why people might think I'm not. I'm very, you know, I think probably that's caused by the fact that we've lived in an era where you can do all kinds of things you didn't used to be allowed to do, but you cannot judge things. And, you know, I am an extremely judgmental person. So that probably is what engenders this fear in people uh, because they're not used to it. I mean, they're not used to people saying this. But in fact, everyone judges everything all the time. They just now say they don't. You're one of the best people at making snap judgments, I've heard. Yes, I make them instantly. Um, I never understand why it takes people so long. I mean, for instance, the Supreme Court. Why does it take them so long, especially the Supreme Court? Because every single question is supposed to be a constitutional question. So I am not a constitutional scholar. And yet I could do the entire Supreme Court calendar in four days. Look at the things that are like, you know, there are things that were recently up that everyone's very aware of. You know, these things are not complicated at all. I mean, I think that probably being like a family court judge in some little town is harder from point of view of it being a more complicated situation. It's not complicated. I mean, they don't decide these things correctly all the time. In fact, most of the time lately. But they could be decided correctly. The simplicity in which you're, you're coming at this, um, it reminds me of that interview you gave in Vanity Fair in 1997. You wrote something that I want to quote here. What is actually served by multiculturalism and all things attendant to it is the power of white people. And this, despite any and all such academic quibbling, is primarily accomplished by the continuing oppression of blacks. Because even though the conversation now includes all these other elements, the truth is that the farther you are from being black, the more likely you are to assimilate, to be more like white. The more you are like white, the less trouble you have. Because the more you are like white, the less trouble you are. I mean, clearly I was right. Why people are now paying attention to it, you know, there are numerous reasons why people are paying attention to it now. I mean, when I uh, wanted to do that piece for Vanity Fair, they don't want me to do it. And not only did they not want me to do it, friends of mine didn't want me to do it. One of the things that now might be hard to imagine, they don't want me to do it because it wasn't a Vanity Fair kind of thing. And so, you know, of course, I don't care about that. People thought that it would cause too much uh, controversy and too much trouble for me. I think, you know, people who, like, cared about me thought it would cause too much trouble for me. Um, it did not cause too much trouble for me. Um, and it was actually very red in Vanity Fair. What's happened now, there are numerous reasons why it, it became so prominent, engulfing in the news. There are numerous reasons for that. I, I have read and seen numerous older uh, black people, politicians, writers, cultural figures saying, this seems different to me than other times it happened. And it does, you know, I hope that they're right. Um, it does seem different, but, you know, partially that's because the time is different. You know, the era is different. But if you're asking me, does this seem solved to me? It does not seem solved to me. I, I, I mean, the problem with racism is that it is a fantasy. That's the problem with it. It's easier to fix something real 
than something that is a fantasy. Because first you have to convince people this is a complete fantasy. I mean, I mean, there's no such thing as differences between people by skin color. It's impossible to imagine people don't know this. It would be as if you divided up the world by shoe size. You know, if you said, well, all people who have a shoe size over nine are superior to all people who have a shoe. And then the entire world was constructed around this. And generations of people, millions of people, let torturous existence because of it. That's how stupid it is. But also because people compare things that are not comparable. So people compare race to religion. They compare religion to gender. They compare, and these things are not comparable. And I don't think anyone is served by these false comparisons. What people call like the problem of race is like a made-up problem. I mean, it's a problem. I'm not saying it's not a problem. But I mean, the germ of it is this fantasy. You know, I don't know when people are going to give this up. I mean, it, one thing that is very different is the attitude toward race is immensely different by age. That is true. That is something I have noticed for a long time. And that is a hopeful sign. And maybe that is one of the reasons that older people are saying this seems different because people who were too young to be the younger people even 10 years ago are now the younger people. Before that, they were too young to be the younger people. So now they're the younger people. And they didn't grow up with the same things. And they have a different attitude uh, that is a better attitude. But there's still a lot of attitude around this. Uh, this is something that could be solved in one second. If you could just get everyone to like, see, here's what this is. You see this? Good. Okay, let's move on. The one question that I haven't seen batted around is something you wrote in that piece where you said, the way to approach it, I think, is not to ask what would it be like to be black, but to seriously consider what it is like to be white. That's something white people almost never think about. And even in this moment of what for some feels like enlightenment, I don't think that's being asked. No, I mean, this is something white people don't think about. This is something, it's the same way that, and this is, you know, after I just said, you can't compare things, I'm going to compare this. This is why men don't understand the Me Too movement. They understand it. Even the best men, even my male friends, my straight male friends are the most carefully curated group of straight men on the planet Earth. Even these men don't understand it. So they, they can't imagine what it's like to be a woman. They can't imagine it. And they don't think about what it's like to be a man because they have been men their whole lives. Even baby boys are treated like men. Baby boys are treated differently than baby girls. So they can't understand it. And white people never think about this. Even an exemplary white person such as myself, here is something I learned, not a skill, but the last big thing I learned that really was a revelation to me. When Toni Morrison won the Nobel Prize, which I don't remember what year it was, it was in the 90s, she took a bunch of friends with her to Stockholm. I was one of these people. So we were in Stockholm for like a week, and one night, the president, Princeton, who at that time was a man named Harold Shapiro, gave a dinner for Tony in a restaurant. And there were about 20 of us at this dinner. And Harold Shapiro was sitting at one end of the table. Tony was sitting next to him. At the opposite end of the table, I was sitting with a bunch of other people that Tony brought. 
one of the people is Aaron McDonald, who was my editor and was Tony's editor. Um, one was Skip Gates. One was Cornell West. I don't remember who the other people were. And I don't remember what we were talking about. But during the conversation, I said, well, if I were black and everybody at my end of the table started laughing so hard, they were like choking with laughter. I'm used to people laughing at what I say, but I usually know why. I had zero idea. So when people had recovered enough to respond to me, I said, what's so funny? And to- this was such raucous laughter that the other end of the table, Tony said, what's so funny? And Errol said, Fran just said, if I were black, and Tony fell on the floor. If I were black, I'd do this, whatever it was. So I said, what's so funny? And one of these guys, I remember who it was, said, if you were black and you talked the way you talk, you would have been in jail since you were 14. And I, not only did I never say that again, I never thought it again. I never thought if I were black or if I was a man or if I was French or if I, because there's no such thing. Because you would be a different person, <laughs> a completely different person. Of course, the way I talk, you cannot talk if you're black. So I wouldn't have. You know, I yell at cops in the street. I've done it my whole life. Not when I was a teenager, when I was afraid of cops still. But I've done it my whole life. I yell at cops in the street when they're not doing what they're supposed to do. I don't mean in some heroic way when they're choking someone to death, you know. But I mean when they're not letting people walk through some street or something. I will just yell at them and walk right past. And numerous times in my life when I've been doing this, young black guys in the street will say to me, are you crazy talking to a cop like that? And I always say, no, I'm not crazy. I'm white. And I'm, you know, I remember the first time it happened, I was 35. I only remember that because I said, I'm a 35-year-old white woman. At that point, thinking I'm quite an old white woman. And the cop's not going to do anything to me. And I know that. I know that, he, I, I know that I can yell at a cop. They won't respond. You know, they'll ignore you, you know, but they're not going to uh, arrest you. They're not going to beat you up. They're not going to kill you. And I've always known that. That's a very different way to be in the world than saying, don't talk to a cop like that. You're going to get killed. You know, Fran, you have, I'm sure, uh, many friends your age. And some of these folks have a hard time reckoning with privilege in any way. Why do you think it is so difficult for people to reframe their thinking? on something like privilege? You know, part, part of it is that most people, and not just white people, most people don't know a lot of people that are not like them. That's a big problem in general. Most people know people who are like them. This is extremely limiting no matter what you're like, okay? So uh, this has never been true of me because I've always been a kind of floater in the world. You know, even in high school, which, you know, it doesn't matter when you go to high school, when you went to high school, high schools are clicky, very clicky. And I was always a floater. It's very hard for people, no matter how smart they are, to imagine not being another person, but seeing that there are other, that that other people respond to you differently. Or, look, I'm not going to say who this is, but I have a friend. um, He's black. He's one of the 10 smartest people I've ever known in my life. Maybe the seven smartest people. He's brilliant. He's telling me some story one day, uh, and he's telling me that he was driving up the West Side Highway, and he 
uh, you tell me something that happened with the cop. I don't even remember actually what the thing was that happened. So I said, but I understand why did he stop you to begin with? And he said, oh, no, it was just a routine traffic stop. And then he keeps talking, telling me this thing. And I said, wait a minute, what's a routine traffic stop? He said, you know, where they stop you, ask for your license or registration. So I said, what are you talking about? For what? So he said, you know, a routine traffic stop. I said, let me explain something to you. He said, you've ever been stopped by a cop? I said, yeah, I've been stopped by a cop who pulls you up and goes, do you realize you're doing 75 and a 65 mile or your left taillights out or you didn't use your signal or whatever? I said, there's no such thing as a routine traffic stop if you're white. If a cop stopped me and didn't give me a reason, I drive off. What's the reason? Why are you stopping me? They, every time they stop me, there's been a reason. I said, what kind of car do you have? He said, I have a Mercedes. I said, that's why you were stopped. That's not routine. That's racism. Up until the time the guy told me this story, which must be 20 years ago, I didn't know that because it never happened to me. But I know this guy. So most people like me, maybe don't know this guy. So they don't know this happens. But the idea that you need to know this guy to understand what's happening it's a little disturbing to me. I don't know. I mean, why would it take you to know someone with the problem to believe there is a problem? Well, you would need to have that friend to know that black people are routinely stopped for no reason at all. A routine traffic stop, as you know, does not exist. They can't actually stop you for no reason. They can't do it. I mean, they do do it, you know, but they cannot do it. First of all, most people don't pay attention to anything other than themselves. Uh, people now, especially because everyone's giving their opinion every minute, people are always telling you, I think this, I think that. And it's not even true what they're saying, by which I mean they're not telling you what they think. They're telling you what they feel. Most people don't think anything. Most people don't think. So we have emotions masquerading as thoughts. And that in itself is a dangerous thing. For many years you would have these phone calls with Toni Morrison and you would ask her, how should I think about this? Not how should I feel about this? Because you knew how you felt. Now that she's gone and it's been almost a year, how have you managed to figure out how you think about things without her? Well, it's been horrible for every reason. But um, I think that maybe, you know, I think what I said in regard to this was that when this virus happened, I didn't know how to think about it. And that was the thing that I most wanted to ask her. And it continues to bother me, but it's becoming slightly clearer. And this is because this is the, this virus is the first thing that has happened in my adult life that didn't remind me of something else. This is why people think, or they don't any longer, but people used to have a kind of respect for old people because they had a lot of experience. So, you, you know, you would say, you know, uh, what does this mean? Or, you know, and they would say, well, this is like that. And I would be the same way. This is like that. This is like nothing that has ever happened in my lifetime. It is, and of course, instantly people, you know, look for comparisons. You know, I heard and I read and heard a million people say this is like the beginning of AIDS, which it is absolutely not. It's just not a correct uh, analogy at all. This is not like AIDS. First of all, at the beginning of AIDS, no one paid attention to it. Everyone's paying attention to this. 
although at the beginning of it, they didn't know how uh, you uh, caught it, but you know, once they said it was sex, you may, because maybe you have sex with 100 different people a week, you may not know who you got it from, but you at least knew you had sex. This, you don't know, am I getting into an elevator where someone just sneezed? We don't know this. We have no way of knowing this. But I have no way of thinking about this. Tony, um, also, although she was much older than I am, um, also never lived through anything like this. But Tony was wise. So Tony, first of all, would not give you a bunch of ridiculous analogies. And then maybe from talking to her, she might already know a way to think about it because people feel, or at least I did, and to, to a large sense, they'll do like you're drowning in molasses. You know, like how t- can you think about this? Not the details of it, but in a, in a larger way. And, and uh, there's no way that, you know, I'm going to become Tony to myself. There just isn't. I have never known anyone else uh, wise. I've known a lot of smart people, but I've only known one, one wise person in my whole life. And so there's no one else to ask. Uh, other friends of Tony have also um, told me the same thing. What do you think made her so wise? Because, I mean, we associate wisdom with intelligence, which, of course, there's, you know, a connection. You know, but as I said, I've known many very smart people. Tony had an unusual, in my experience, you know, unique breadth of humanity. She was just an enormous person. You know, for, uh, she... When I was a kid, my mother used to say to me all the time, can't you be the bigger person? Can't you be the bigger person? And, you know, it turns out, no, I can't. <laughs> I'm the smaller person. By, by nature, I'm the smaller person. What my mother really meant was, can't you forgive people? Can't you, you know? But Tony was the bigger person. Tony was, in fact, the biggest person that I've ever known. She would think about it not just, you know, um, cognitively. It's, you know, her thinking was informed also by this level of humanity she had, which was not just some sort of forgiving nature, you know, which she did have much more than me, but everyone does. It was an ability to see other people who could be vastly different from you whole. And you see that in her books, by the way. You don't have to know her to know this. You know, I mean, in her writing, you see this. You know, uh, she sees every side of a person. She and. She had like the most profound empathy I've ever encountered. You know, so the, although there were people she disliked for sure, considering how many people she knew, which were, you know, a huge number of people, she, in my opinion, disliked relatively few people to the degree that most people dislike people. Because even if she disliked someone, eventually she would find some aspect of them, not that she liked, but some reason for it, which is a kind of forgiveness which I don't have at all. I don't care why you're like that, by the way. You're like this, I don't care why. But Tony wasn't like that at all. And so, th- I mean, that's what makes her novels. I mean, I've always felt that a book, a novel, is the closest thing to a human being that there is other than human being. I know most people think it's a puppy, but they're wrong. So Tony's books are filled with actual people. I mean, I assume I'm not a novelist, but I assume that is one of the goals of a novelist. And they're filled with actual people. You know, that's, that's wisdom. Why don't you believe in forgiveness? It's not that I don't believe in it. It's that I don't, I don't understand what you're talking about. In other words, I've asked a million people this, by the way. It's not, you know, 
What do you mean? Do you mean you forget about it? No, it means that you acknowledge it and you move on. I think it's the moving on part that is not accessible to me. The forgetting about it, absolutely not accessible. Um, I mean, I'm not talking about like minor little things, but I, I see the upside of it from a moral point of view. It's a very lofty idea, by the way. And it's so interesting to me how many people talk about forgiveness who not only are not very lofty, but they are people that I would describe as absolutely base. But I don't know. It's just not in my nature uh, to forgive or to forget. Someone, a friend, will tell me something that happened to them, that something someone did to them. I will then, on the behalf of this friend, stop speaking to this person. Then, like five years later, when I've been stopping this person for five years who I barely know, I'll see my friend talking to this person. And I'll say, but what about this? Remember, he did this to you? Oh, I forgot about that. <laughs> so you walk around harboring all these these difficult ill will feelings towards, towards people you half care about. That seems so tiring to me. It's not, it comes naturally. I don't have to even think about it. Oh, to you, it comes naturally. Yeah. I don't even have to think about it. It's not a burden. It really isn't a burden. I don't think about it unless, you know, it comes up, you know, it's not a burden. I feel, I feel burdened for you. Well, you, you must be, um, maybe more sensitive than I am. Oh, well, I mean, I, I don't even think that's a contest. I think I win that in a landslide. I think holding grudges is a kind of like modern equivalent of having standards. <laughs> Are people actually listening to this now? <laughs> they aren't listening uh, right now. We're not doing this live, but they will listen once it airs. I, of course, I've never heard a podcast, so <laughs> I've been on them before, I, but I, I, I don't really... I've never listened to one because you have to listen to it on your phone or your computer, right? You do. I hate machines. Not having a computer is the same as my not having a typewriter. I didn't have the old machines. I don't have the new machines. My response to a machine that won't work or that stopped working is to hit it. <laughs> Any machine that breaks, it makes me, it ruins my day. Like, how am I ever going to get this thing to work? I mean, I have a car that is, uh, I bought in 1978. Checker. Um, as a checker. I would say that maybe 10 years ago, maybe. I figure out how to open the hood of the car, although I can't always do it. They used to put the gas in their car at a gas station. The person who used to do this was a gas station attendant. They still have this in New Jersey. So this is the only state that I'm aware of where you're not allowed to put gas in the car. So I don't know how to put gas in the car, and I don't want to put gas in the car. It's as simple as that. I don't work in a gas station. I'm not going to start now working at a gas station. So in New Jersey, they will put gas in the car, and... If I'm alone in my car in a state where they don't do that, I have to like beg someone else to do it for me. And how does it go when you beg? Sometimes it goes all right. It depends. I've learned certain things to ask. Like the best thing, if you're in, now I wouldn't do this because now I wouldn't go to these states. But if you're in a state, you know, a rural place where now I'm afraid to be, but if you're in a place like this and if you're me, you can say, I'm so sorry, but you know, my husband always did this. Oh, let me take care of this for you. <laughs> um, once in rural Pennsylvania, I asked someone to help me, a guy with a van, and he wouldn't. There was no one else around, and I noticed that he had these stickers all over his van. You know, um, I love Jesus. There were crosses. You know, what would Jesus do? So I said, you know, I feel that Jesus would help me. 
put the gas in the car, don't you? So he did. You mentioned the the fake partner that you had that died so that you could get gas uh, put in for you. I have been thinking in this quarantine where we're all more isolated than usual. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. In my book, David and Goliath, I tried to figure out how some people find the strength to take on the established way of thinking and turn it upside down. What does it take to be a disruptor? And I concluded that a disruptor is someone with a rare combination of three traits. First, you have to be open. You have to be willing to see and do things in new ways. Secondly, you have to be conscientious, to follow through and make things happen. Those two are obvious, but the third one is the crucial one. You have to be willing to do what you think is right, even when everyone around you thinks you're an idiot. There isn't a brilliant innovator in history who wasn't surrounded by naysayers. Most of us can't take that kind of criticism and we fold, but the disruptor doesn't. They soldier on. I've been looking at disruptors and their success stories a lot lately, partly because I'm working on a follow-up to the tipping point. The market disruption plays a key role in how ideas take off, but also because I'm going to be the keynote speaker at this year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business. It's an event where customers are recognized for kicking convention to the curb to elevate their company, while also doing meaningful things for their community and even the world. In fact, I'll be presenting the first ever Tipping Point designation, a new special distinction honoring one entrant that sparked transformative change for their organization. If this event sounds like your thing, I encourage you to find out more or even enter the unconventional awards to be recognized for your disruptive thinking. Win a donation to a charity of your choice and much more. You can enter before July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Before AI can help your business predict demand, accelerate growth, inform decisions, automate tasks, reveal insights, generate content, you have to trust it. Introducing WatsonX Governance. Helping you govern any AI as data, models, and policies change so you can scale it responsibly. Let's create AI that begins with trust with WatsonX Governance. Learn more at ibm.com governance. IBM. Let's create. Have you felt lonely in this? No. Not in that way. I mean, I live by myself. I have lived by myself since I was 18. This, by the way, is a tremendous accomplishment for a lesbian. I would just like to point that out. So, 
um, because I, I loathe domestic life. And I do not want anyone in my apartment all the time. But what I've always done my whole life is I am kind of alternately a hermit and a lounge lizard. I mean, I like to go out. I don't live in the middle of New York City to, you know, pretend I'm living in a cabin on a mountain. So, you know, that is the lack of social life, you know, and street life and city life, you know, I feel very keenly. But I could, numerous people have asked me this. I, I, I mean, people I know. Well, you're by yourself. Well, thank God, because I could never have got, there's never been the person born that I could stand to be in smart with for four months. It's out of the question. And so the people who I know who are with people, I feel sorry for them. Have you found it difficult to maintain a long-term relationship? My idea of a long-term relationship is like Labor Day weekend. There are certain kind of human relationships I'm very good at and some I'm very bad at. All right. So I am a fantastic friend, a great, I would say world-class friend. I was a, I was a spectacular daughter, spectacular, uh, but I am a horrible girlfriend, horrible because I, I can't stay faithful to people because I get bored. You know, it's like what I would say about my car. When people say you still have that car, how could you still have that car? And I would say, I still have that car. Because I'm still in love with this car. This car is the only monogamous relationship of my life. Every time I see this car, I think, what a beautiful car. I don't think, oh, that car again. No one's good at everything. I'm just bad at it. Do you not believe in monogamy? First of all, I don't believe in anything you have to believe in. But second of all, I don't think monogamy is in any way a natural state. I guess people do it. I mean, the people that I know say that are friends of mine, I have a few friends who've been married for very long periods of time or with someone for very long periods of time. Um, it is not my observation that these people are faithful to each other for this amount of time, you know, because it's not, I mean, I guess it's possible, you know, it's not impossible like flying is, but um, it's unlikely. And, you know, I, I generally think that people are, you know, as, you know, sexually faithful um, as they have to be. I mean, one thing I did think about, this was not my problem, but since I do know people who lead, you know, double and triple lives, I thought, well, what are they doing now? Because <laughs> there's no way to get out of the house. There's no way to, it's like cell phones, you know, once they invented them, you know, uh, uh, people can find each other all the time. When You may not have, like, gone through this period, but there was a period where there were phones on planes, um, like on the back of the seat. I forgot what it was called. But uh, the first time I saw this, I got on the plane and I saw this on the back of the seat in front of me. I panicked because I'm a person who up until then was always saying, I did try. I wanted to call you, but, you know, I was on the plane or the plane was late. Plane didn't leave. You could say that because no one could find out when the plane left. So at first, when I saw this phone on the plane, I thought people could call into the plane. That was my panic. It, you never could do that. Okay, you can never call into the plane. You could call out on the plane. Those phones that they had in, on planes cost like a thousand dollars a second. So I hardly ever saw anyone use them. I, I never used it. Now anyone can find you anywhere. I know that people lie. I mean, I have heard people say stuck in you know such a place. And I know they weren't because I was with them. But with this shutdown, that was impossible. 
you're right. You're asking the big question. So these people that have like their hidden families, their second families in Montauk, do they tell their families in New York City, like I'm going out for disinfectant, like I'm going to go get the essentials to keep us alive? How do they make the calls? I have no idea. One friend that I have is a man who's married to a woman. Now you have to make you know, specify these things. I have been curious. I've not asked him, uh, but I have been curious as to how are you handling this? But I'm sure this is a problem that people are having. It's not a problem that people are probably telling people they have, and it's not a problem compared to, you know, being on a ventilator. So, I mean, the problem is that when you have, you know, the situation with this virus, you know, which is a horrible life-and-death situation, even though people have small problems, they're not allowed to say they have them. Have you ever been in love before? I've been in love a million times. I love romance. It's domestic life I don't like. Being in love is a kind of drugged condition. So it doesn't last. Love may last, but being in love, which is, you know, romance, you know, it's a, it's a fleeting thing. You're in love with people because you don't know them. Fall in love with someone, you're imposing a lot of fantasy on that person and they on you. Um, and then little by little, this fantasy dissipates because you get to know them. And there may be nothing wrong with them. I'm not saying there's something wrong with them, but they happen not to be this dream. I mean, I've been in love with people I don't like at all. <laughs> so, I mean, um, and I, I like people and love people that I could never be in love with. When you put out those two books, Metropolitan Life and Social Studies, I know you've been asked about them to death. I'm not going to ask you about them as much as I enjoy them. I'm interested because in the film Public Speaking that you made with Martin Scorsese, you said after those two books came out, you took a bunch of meetings. And in those meetings, you were offered lots of money. And with that money came spinoff projects and projects that didn't exist that you could write, but you didn't write and you didn't take any of it. And at the end of this monologue that you give in the film, you say, if I knew that would be it... I might have taken it. From a financial point of view, it would have been smart to do that. And especially now, because now the way that I make money for the last like 15, 20 years is by doing speaking dates, which as I'm sure you're aware, no one does. You can't do them. So I'm you know, in, in particularly bad financial shape right now. Um, and so if I had done all these things, I would not be in this bad financial shape. But I also would not be me. So, um, you know... Any regrets I have in regard to that are financial, but they're not real because they, no one was saying to me, here is a million dollars, just go home and read. Okay, So they were saying, here's a million dollars, we're going to take this thing and we're going to turn to something that you hate. Or we're going to request that you come to Los Angeles and participate in some hideous experience where a lot of people turn to something you hate. And then we're going to give you more money, but you're going to be in this horrible state of mind. No one has ever said, here's a lot of money, enjoy yourself. Did you think at the time in the early 80s that this would just continue, that you would have these options if you needed to take them? Well, let me assure you, I still have many options, but they're the same kind of thing. In other words, they, they're, I still get many offers to write television shows and things like that, and I still don't want to do it. And I still know that I would be very unhappy doing it, more unhappy than not having money. If you have two choices, you're lucky. 
usually have no choices. Okay, but people seem to imagine they have a million choices. So there is not this third choice the same way there wasn't, you know, you either had to vote for Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. There wasn't a third choice. So if you didn't vote for Hillary Clinton, you got Donald Trump. So yeah, those are usually the kind of choices we have in life. So my choice in regard to this has basically been do something you don't want to do. That And when I say don't want to, I don't mean in a light way. I mean really don't want to. Or in lots of ways that I know I couldn't do, even if other people think I could do it. There's certain things I regret not having taken the money for because they didn't happen. So I would they would literally just have paid me to lie on the sofa and read. But you never know. That's going to happen. In 1993, you said, I had a delayed and not very positive reaction to success. Failed by success. What does that mean? I mean, there was a tremendous amount of hostility toward me. You know, uh, when my first book came out and even my second book came out, that really shocked me. Hostility from whom? From people in my family, from people I knew, from people I didn't know, from, you know, all the 50-year-old men who were the big writers at the time, from things I just never thought about. A lot of people were very jealous of me, and some, many people who were jealous of me were not writers. So, you know, it's one thing, I suppose, you know, or they were writers who did something different, or they were simply not writers at all, you know, uh, or they were 40 years older than me, or they were, um, you know, it'd be, it, some, of the, some of the responses to the success of that book were, to me, outlandish, and even now seem outlandish. It would be as if, I don't know anything really about sports, but whoever is the most, you know, the greatest basketball player now, I don't know, LeBron, is LeBron James still a basketball player? He's the best player in the league right now, basically. Okay. It would be as if LeBron James, you know, has a fantastic basketball game and I was eaten alive with envy. Like, why am I not the best basketball player? Well, you're not a basketball player. Let's start there. One thing I would have to say on my own behalf is that not wholly because I'm human, I am the luckiest. I've always felt that the luckiest thing about me for me is how relatively free of envy I am. I just don't compare myself to other people. I just don't go around thinking, why do you have that apartment? Why don't I have it? You know, why did you, you know, write this book? Why didn't I? I just don't compare myself to other people. And I really never have. Is that because you have self-esteem? I think it's because I have too much self-esteem. I understand the differences between people. A lot of people don't. One thing I've always known, even when I was young, is if you envy something about someone, you have to take the whole thing. Many people, maybe most, maybe almost all people, envy people who have a lot of money. And this is certainly common in this country. I have known numerous people who have huge amounts of money. And whenever people who don't express envy of those people, I always say, okay, you have his money, you have to be him. And I know him really well. That's, you can't just be you with a billion dollars. You have to be him. And you have to be the sort of person who got that billion dollars to begin with, and that is not you. It's just, it's childish. And I mean, I understand it more with little kids or even teenagers, but it is rampant among adults. I mean, it's common. I understand that I am not LeBron James, that LeBron James has nothing to do with me. He is not a great basketball player at my expense. I remember you said that there's this kind of mythology that writers need to have where they have to have something wrong with them. And someone asked you, this is back in the 70s, someone asked you, and what is wrong with you? 
and you said with a straight face and a small smile, you said, nothing at all. Generally, to be a writer, I'm not telling you about to be a successful writer, or to, to be an actual writer, to be a writer as a person, what you have to have is usually you have to be outside. You know, by which I mean you have to be outside whatever it is you're in in order to observe it. You have to notice things, which is why white people don't know this, what it's like to be black. That's why. Very often people say, I had a horrible childhood, and you know, or I had a horrible uh, time. And people very often say, I was such an unhappy teenager. Like, they're, like what's a happy teenager? There can't be very many. You know, it's, a, it's a very difficult period of life. But you have to observe things. I mean, I used to say, I'm sure this isn't true any longer because things have changed so much, that in any given high school, there are two people you know, when I was that age, there are two people in the high school loving high school. One is the captain of the football team. The other one's his girlfriend. Now, high school is not like that anymore. Life is not like that anymore. But what happened then and what happens now, if you take the football player and the girlfriend and turn them into different things at the moment, the football player and the girlfriend are not noticing what high school is like. Everyone else could be noticing what high school is like, but they're spending all their time wishing they were the captain of the football team or the girlfriend. That's what you have to have as a writer. There have been so many comparisons in this moment, as you mentioned, uh, COVID and the AIDS epidemic. And I know you feel that comparison is not only useless, but inaccurate. In 1987, you wrote an article that I'm sure you're aware of called The Impact of AIDS on the Artistic Community. In it, you give 12 sort of short passages from that moment. It is now a kind of time capsule. And if you don't mind, I'd like to read from one of them. Number seven, the impact of AIDS on the artistic community is that a 36-year-old writer takes time at a memorial service for the world's preeminent makeup artist and a man worth any number of interesting new painters to get angry because the makeup artist's best friend and eulogist uses a story that she has for years been hoarding for her book, which she can't write anyway unless she writes it as a historical novel, because it's about a world that in the last few years has disappeared almost entirely. That article for the Times was called that because that's what they told me to call the article. So I kept saying... I didn't love that phrase, so I used it all the time. Um, that is true. And by the way, I still remember that story, um, which really would now be almost impossible to describe to someone. That's an article a lot of people hated. A lot of people were angry at me about that article. I mean, the first person I knew who died of AIDS died in 1979. No one knew he died of AIDS because no one ever heard of it. When I heard he died, I kept saying, what did he die of? And saying, no one knows. They think it was some kind of cancer or something. Um, so, uh, and certainly people died before that and they didn't know. And that's the thing about AIDS. At the beginning, they didn't know what it was. I mean, they don't know much about this virus, but this virus is much more known already than AIDS was. They always say the first time people heard of it was there was an article in the Times. That may be the first time some people heard of it. There was an article in the Times. But it was not called AIDS. It was called GRID. 
gay-related immunodeficiency is what it was called. Already there had been time passed because that's at the point at which they identified that it was mostly gay men getting it. At the beginning, maybe mostly gay men were getting it, but they didn't realize it had anything to do with that. They didn't even know it was from sex. And even once they found out gay men were getting it, they didn't think they didn't even know it was from sex. There were a million theories. One of which was I never could forget this was uh, they thought it was from amyl nitrate, which you probably don't even know what it is, but it it was a drug kind of that you could either it was in a capsule and people would break it like under their nose while they're having sex. It was supposed to intensify your orgasm. In discos and gay discos, guys used to soak bandanas in this liquid version of this and hold these bandanas in their mouths. So the place would reek of this stuff. I hated the smell of it. Um, and they said it was from that. It, to truthfully, it never occurred to, to me or the people I knew that it was from sex. It never occurred to us that unbelievably promiscuous sex could be anything but good. How could this be bad? So, you know, it's the same way with drugs. When people first started taking drugs, people thought drugs are good. How could drugs be bad? Drugs are wonderful, you know, so that it took, you know, a million people had to die before they thought, you know, maybe all these drugs are not that good for you. Still, it took a long time for people to believe or know that it was uh, transmitted by sex um, and blood transfusions, which it came, I think, later that they realized that. And they knew nothing about it. But also, no one cared about it. People who are younger than me, which is almost everyone, cannot understand how separate life was for gay and straight people. Unbelievably profound difference between these two worlds, even for people who floated between these two worlds. Still, it was incredibly different. And so uh, straight people didn't even know about it, paid no attention to it, didn't care about it at all. The same way that uh, like when Ebola was happening in Africa, you know, as long as it didn't come here, people weren't talking about it all the time. Once that they, you know, kind of like nailed it down that, you know, straight people were unlikely to get it, although you could. I know tons of people who died of AIDS. I don't know any straight men who had it, including the most promiscuous straight men on the planet Earth. The women I know who, who, who died of it, who got it from sex, got it from, you know, bisexual men. The other people I know who got it were IV drug users. But people uh, weren't talking about it, straight people, and straight people are most people. So they weren't talking about it. They didn't care about it. Ronald Reagan was a president then. He never said the word. It's a very unfortunate thing for this country that we almost always have our worst presidents during the time of greatest need. You know, I mean, there haven't been in my lifetime a great president. You know, I didn't live during Abraham Lincoln. I didn't live during Franklin Roosevelt. But we've had our absolute worst presidents when we needed the better presidents the most. I mean, we had George W. Bush on September 11th. We had Ronald Reagan during AIDS. We have Donald Trump during this. You know, it, it's, it's really a disaster. I mean, it makes a disaster a much worse disaster. It doesn't seem to me anything like AIDS at all. My theory about what AIDS did in the end, other than, you know, kill people or make people sick, was I really think that things like gay marriage would never have happened without AIDS. I know this is a thing you're not allowed to say, but... I really believe that. I never heard anyone talk about gay marriage. It's unimaginable to me that anyone would want to be married. It's certainly not you. 
not me. But I mean, I never heard anyone say this. I never heard anyone say, wouldn't it be great? You know, there was this big thing of outing people. Um, and I thought it was awful. And people would say, so-and-so's in the closet. Or people will say, you know, oh, so-and-so was in the closet in 1951. And I would say, everyone was. Everyone was. You know, it's like calling a black person Uncle Tom because in 1940 they jumped off the sidewalk in Alabama when a white man was coming. Yeah, or die. So, you know, uh, it, it's a totally awful thing to say about people and not, and, and it's an ignorant thing to say. So that when we used to talk about people being in the closet, we meant to us, to other gay people, but not to straight people. You know, I mean, people talk about raids in bars because they always talk about Stonewall now. Um, raids in gay bars, the fear in certain kind of bars, not the Stonewall, which was a kind of drag queen bar, and a kind of, but in, in more kind of middle class bars, was they arrested everyone in the bar. And the next day, the name of everyone arrested was in the newspaper. Not just the tabloids, the Times. And that day, every single person got fired from their job, no matter what their job was. So if you're going to get fired from your job, then you would be in the closet to, to avoid getting fired from your job. And that was everybody. That was New York City. This was, uh, that wasn't, you know, some rural place in Alabama. That was New York City. That was the kind of fear people had. Um, fear was you would lose your job. The fear was you couldn't rent an apartment. So years ago, and not, you know, I would say in the late 70s, someone, uh, after my book came out, because I was looking to buy an apartment, um, a friend of mine, a gay man, called and told me about this. It was an incredible deal. Uh, I just looked at this apartment. It's on Park Avenue, which, you know, I said, what? You know, can't afford to buy an apartment on Park Avenue. Um, and he told me where the building was and how great the apartment was. And I said, well, if it's, and this guy had much more money than I did. I said, well, if it's so great, I knew he was looking for an apartment. That's why he saw it. I said, why didn't, why didn't you buy it? He said, oh, I can't get into that building. It's co-op. So I said, really? I mean, this is a waspy, you know, guy. So I said, why not? He said, a gay man can't get in that building. And there were tons of buildings gay men couldn't get into. Tons of buildings. And the reason was, the fear was that they would bring, you know, hustlers into the building. And then they would go into other people's apartments and steal their stuff. That was common. And sometimes just because, no, we hate gay people, although they didn't say gay people. So that, that was the world at the time. And so, you know, I don't remember people talking about gay marriage. It was not really imaginable. For you, on a human level, how did you get through that time and, and how has it stayed with you? You know, I think that I am, I'm not an activist politically. I've never been one, although sometimes people frequently, kids, thank me. Thank you. I know you fought for gay marriage. No, I didn't. I am a person who took the world as I found it. So my method of operation was, how can I get around this stuff? But how can I change it? It never occurred to me it would change. Nothing has changed more in my lifetime than being gay has changed. Nothing. Being gay was the same from, like, the, the you know, the caves of, of southwestern France until, you know, 20 years ago or 30 years ago, whatever this change. I mean, that's how it never occurred to me to change. So I didn't think, how can I change this? 
I thought, where can I go to get around it? And that's what I did. So I knew, I mean, I lived in a small town in Jersey. That's where I grew up. Um, it was a very nice town. Probably, possibly if I was straight, I just would have stayed there. But I knew I couldn't stay there. You could stay there, yes, if you pretended to be straight and got married, but I wasn't ever thinking of that. So, but, you know, it was 40 miles from New York. So, you know, I went to New York. Once I came to New York and I found how fun it was, by the way, here, um, I didn't care. I just, it was just the way I maneuvered around the world. Not just me, it's what people did. Some people didn't. Some people responded with political activism, but I was not one of those people. I'm sure it took a toll on me. I just didn't think of it. I didn't think about it. You know, I thought this is the world. This is you. How will you, you know, get around in the world? Not how will you knock the world down? I never thought that. But you couldn't get around people dying. You couldn't get around people dying, and neither could anyone else. And that is what I'm saying is why, in other words, you could pretend to be straight, but you can't pretend not to be dead. So that is what happened. For instance, I mean, this may seem like a very um, solipsistic example, but it is, it is, but it's a good example. When my when Metropolitan Life came out, uh, it was not expected to do very well. You know, I painted, by, by which I mean the publisher did not expect to do well. So the first printing of that book was 6,000 copies. So it became, you know, I don't remember, it went to numerous printings. It, it, it sold a very large number of copies. But the first editions were rare because there were only 6,000 of them. They were bought, you know, right away before the first reviews. The first reviews came out very quickly, like within a week or two, I don't remember, you know, of the book coming out. But the very first copies were bought by the people who read my common interview. That was my audience. So for a long period of time, those first editions cost a lot of money because, there, you know, there were so few. Then at a certain point, they started showing up, lots of them. At the Strand, you know, at, um, at the Argosy, at, you know, at second-hand bookstores, there were actually a lot more second-hand bookstores then. And the people in the bookstores were saying to me, I don't know why we're getting all these copies, these first editions. I said, because of AIDS. Because the people who bought them died. And when anyone cleaned out their apartment, you know, they didn't want them. They put them in a box, they sent them to you. That's why. So, you know, that was a very specific group of people. Those were people, I, I didn't know every single one of them, but I knew a lot of people, of those people. Um, and that was a specific group of people, and they were the first people to die of AIDS. And their parents didn't know they were gay, a lot of them. And a lot of them couldn't go home, back to their parents. You know, uh, I mean, a lot of these people were young. They were in their 20s. Very few people that I knew were out to their parents. Very few. I mean, the parents probably knew, but no one discussed it. You know, um, no one had to deal with it. No one wanted to deal with it. People don't deal with things they don't have to. Here's how, it's very hard to explain this to people, but homosexuality, which I know you're not supposed to say anymore, but I can't remember what you're supposed to say. Homosexuality didn't exist in the culture. Now, where you're constantly reading people saying, 
I can't watch that television show. I don't see someone who looks like me in it. Or I don't, you know, can't read that book. There's not a character who sounds like me. Or, you know, uh, this was the world, by the way. So if you lived in a small town like I did, it didn't exist. You never even heard of it, especially with women. You know, you heard about it more with men, but it was, it, it just didn't exist. If I wasn't the bookworm I was as a child, I would never have heard of it. I just knew about it from reading. You know, I had a friend, she's now dead, who grew up in um, Wilmington, Delaware, in a very kind of blue-collar family environment. And she told me that when she became aware of it in herself, she thought she was the only person in the world like that. And that was not uncommon. Imagine how alienating that is. That's impossible now. Every single person, you know, and every little part of the country knows about this. Do you think part of your writer's blockade came from the fact that the world you wrote about started to vanish in front of you? I don't. I really don't think this can be blamed on the culture. I don't. Because that world disappeared, but I did not disappear, and the, the world didn't disappear. And you will see now, I mean, no one knows what's going to happen because of this virus, but people keep saying, you know, this is going to be the new normal. This is going to, first of all, it's not going to be the new normal. There's no such thing as new normal. Um, and second of all, no one knows what's going to happen. And probably that feeling that I had at the beginning of this virus, which is that I was just waiting for it to end, even though people know that it's not going to end in two weeks, probably most people, including myself, largely still have that feeling. By the time I wrote that thing for the Times, that novel was already like five years late. <laughs> I don't. I, I really don't think that's the reason. What do you think it is? I mean, part of it was, I think, you know, these are just theories I have about my own life. I don't really know. And there's not, no way to check this because if I don't know, who's going to know? That I do know that at a certain point, I stopped, I, I, you know, I always did a lot of television talk shows and stuff like that. And... A friend of mine reminded me, a friend that I've had that long, that I've had you know, this friend for like 45 years, reminded me the other day, she said, do you remember you said, I cannot stand listening to myself anymore? So it might have been that. I mean, that might have been an aspect. In fact, that certainly was an aspect of it. But I don't, I really don't know. Your father was in World War II, right? Yes. And throughout your childhood, you would ask him about the war and as you grow up, he continued to not tell you about the war. And then, as he was dying, it was all he talked about with you. And in those final months, you realized that perhaps you didn't actually know him. Not at all. I realized I didn't know him at all. Like 60 years later, the war was still haunting him. The men of that kind of generation were not taught to talk about anything personal. Do you feel like you've inherited some part of that quality? It's possible, but I mean, I, I, I was not a tank gunner in Nazi Germany, so uh, which I did not know my father was until after he died. When I, you know, I went through his things and found his army papers and hit photographs from the army, and that is one of the worst jobs, I don't know what you call it, assignment, whatever you could have. It was one of the most dangerous, awful things you could do. They stood in the tank and people shot at them. Nazis, not just regular people, Nazis. 
Um, and he was 18 when he went in. I, you know, I think that my father wasn't the only person traumatized by being in the war. Um, I did not go through anything like that. Um, but it certainly is possible. You know, I mean, it's not possible. It's, you know, everybody, you know, is a, a responds to the things that happen to them. And some people take things harder than others. My, I, I'm not as reticent a person as my father was. Men of my father's generation didn't talk about their feelings, period. I mean, some may have. I mean, it was looked down on. It was, it was not manly. There were men who talked about the war all the time. My father looked down on those men. You know, war stories. My father would always say, I don't know what war they're talking about. You know, men who had, like, funny stories about the war. I didn't go through a war. I, I think analogies to war, you, you know, are really terrible. So uh, even calling this virus a war, it's not a war. You know, I mean, war is a very specific, horrible thing. There are other horrible things. So, no, I don't think that I, I have a kind of a trauma of a war, no. I'm going to ask you, just as point blankly as you may say it, does your heart still want to write? I do. I still, I do still want to write. I mean, I still, I still write down things all the time. I feel like I live in a welter of little pieces of paper where I write stuff down. So I assume sometimes when I become aware of it, because it's such a habit of mine, I think, what are you doing this for? You must imagine there's going to be a time where you take all these millions of little pieces of paper and sit down and use them for something. I know people born in 1950 in that generation don't like to think of these things, but are you happy with the work you've done? I mean, the work that I've done, I'm happy with. Otherwise, you wouldn't know I did it. The decisions I made... I, I'm sure I made numerous bad decisions, but I, I don't regret the decisions I made that you referred to earlier. I don't regret, you know, not, you know, selling Metropolitan Life to make a Broadway musical out of, which for which I got three or four offers. Um, I I don't regret those kind of things at all. I know uh, in 2015 you went around the country and made prognostications about how President Trump would not, in fact, be President Trump. I know. Look what I picked to be wrong about. Since we're here in July, what do you think the next five months look like for us? I, uh, obviously, because I was so wrong last time and because I'm so, like, noted for being so wrong, <laughs> and also because I have numerous friends who think he's going to win again, and I don't know whether they really believe that or they don't want to be in the position I was in when, you know, I couldn't go on the street without people yelling at me, you were wrong. Um, I do not think he's going to win. I do not think he's going to win. Now, I know I could be wrong. I, I do not think he's going to win. I really don't. And just because he won last time and just because I was wrong last time, this isn't last time. This isn't 2016. This is 2020. Numerous things have happened. I certainly see, I mean, my best friend uh, was one of the few people who said Trump might win last time. And I just made fun of her. I said, that's ridiculous. Why would you think such a thing? And she said, you don't understand the country because you don't watch reality TV. And I said, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. Now, I was aware of that television show he did, but I never saw it. I'm aware of reality TV. I've never seen it. 
But one thing that I didn't know was that people thought that it was real. So they thought that he was really a boss. They thought he was really, you know, a billionaire. I mean, you live in New York. No one in New York thought he was that. No one in New York even thought he was in the real estate business. The actual real estate developers, not your finest group of people on the planet Earth, they looked down on him. So I knew there were a lot of stupid people in the country. I didn't know there were that many. When I first saw the first one of his campaign rallies, I was shocked. And I remember saying to people, this is a George Wallace rally. And people younger than me saying, who is George Wallace? And I said, this is a Klan rally. It was so clear to me what this was. And so I came to believe that the people who support him, supported him, the people who so accurately are called his base, these people, most of whom suffer for his so-called policies, these people, it must be such so pleasurable to be able to express your racism that they don't care that they have no health care and they have horrible schools and they don't care, I guess, you know. Um, but, you know, the thing about this virus, different from every other thing, it's just like AIDS. Here's where it's like AIDS. You could pretend you weren't gay, but you couldn't pretend you weren't dead. You could pretend that the president is a genius, but you can't pretend that your husband didn't die of this virus. You can't pretend that. So I think that's going to have a big effect. I also think that, you know, his doubling down, you know, on his love for the Confederacy um, is the wrong moment for it. You know, I'm not saying there aren't still, you know, tons of racists in this country, but it is a dying breed, not in a profound way, but at the moment. And truthfully, I mean, I actually think, I mean, I know nothing about this virus. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a scientist. But I do know that, or at least I believe, that the most long-lasting, other than if you didn't die and if your brother didn't die or your daughter didn't die or whatever, the most long-lasting effects are going to be economic. And you just can't pretend that you have a job. You can't pretend that you can pay your rent. You just can't pretend this stuff. So he can talk about the stock market, which, you know, as you know, hardly anyone is in, and certainly not most of the people that go to his rallies, you know, and you can point to the stock market. And what you can see about the stock market now, if you didn't already see it, is that clearly this is rigged. I, by which I mean, this has nothing to do with what the economy is to 99% of people. So the stock market is not going to go down. They're not going to let it go down. The same way, you know, that at the very high end of the art market, even if someone spent $100 million on a really bad piece of art, and enough people did that with that artist, it's not going to go down. They're not going to let it because they have too much. And that's it. I know you can't forgive people, but do you have faith in them? Oh, I mean, I have to know you. I'll tell you one thing that I do know, that average people are better than extremely successful people. I do know that. Better people. I know that for a fact. Because I know a lot of very successful people, and I know mostly what you have to do to be very successful, and most people don't do those things. Fran, I know every moment in which you're not writing, you feel like a felon or a criminal, <laughs> so I appreciate you existing in that feeling during this conversation and indulging me for as long as you have. You're welcome. Please stay safe, and really, thank you so, so much. Oh, you're very welcome. Nice to talk to you.
that's our show. Special thanks this week to the inimitable Fran Leibowitz. To read some of her work, be sure to visit our site at www.talkeasypod.com. On there, you'll find links to her books, Metropolitan Life, and Social Studies, along with passages from the pieces we discussed in this episode. If you want to hear more conversations with writers, I'd recommend listening to our talks with Gloria Steinem, Noam Chomsky, Jelani Cobb, Elizabeth Gilbert, and Roxanne Gay. You can find all of those and more on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Acast, wherever you do your listening. You can also give us a follow on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TalkEasyPod. And if you'd like to join our mailing list, drop me a line at TalkEasyPod at gmail.com. This show would not be possible without our incredible team. Our executive producer is Janik Sabravo. Our associate producer is Nikki Spina. Our editors are Andre Lynn, Kat Owen, and Eli Weiss. Our music is by Dylan Peck. Our social media is by Kieran Aftab. Our intern is Patrice Lee. Illustrations by Krishna Shenoy. Graphics by Ian Jones. And the show is produced by Caroline Reebok. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you back here next Sunday with Hannah Gatsby. Until then, have a safe week, everyone. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. You know, I love music, but I haven't picked up an instrument in years. You know why? I tell myself, I don't have time. Where am I going to find a teacher? Well, there's an answer. Musora. Musora is the place where you can learn essential skills and techniques with more than a hundred of the world's best teachers and musicians and thousands of famous songs. You get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 per month, less than a single private lesson. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey today. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.